spellbinding, riveting, unforgettable. The Shawshank Redemption is one of the best films of the year. An emotional blockbuster, a monumental achievement in filmmaking. What are you talking about? Upon its release in 1994, the now-beloved film The Shawshank Redemption absolutely tanked at the box office. Its opening weekend, it wasn't even the top movie. Does anyone remember Terminal Velocity? The Shawshank Redemption took in only $16 million on a $25 million budget, a box office disappointment so huge that your biggest poster of Rita Hayworth can't even hide it. Sure, critics loved it. It snagged seven Oscar nominations, including Best Picture, but on Oscar night, it went home empty-handed, garnering zero wins. But just the following year, word of mouth about this movie with a strange name and an aggressive push in the U.S. video rental store market helped to make it the most rented film of 1995. And that's not all. In 1997, Ted Turner purchased the rights for cable broadcasts, which meant that it could air as much as it wanted. And man, did they. You could turn on TNT in the late 90s and early 2000s, and it was pretty much guaranteed that you'd see the Shawshank Redemption playing on a loop. For its final redemption, fast forward to 2015, where the film made its way onto the Library of Congress's National Film Registry for being culturally significant and worthy of preservation. Now that's a redemption. Now that's what I call a fast redemption, volume 32. <laughs> Welcome back to this episode of the Pop Trash Podcast. I'm Eric Griggs. And I'm Mike Jones. Each episode, we take a pop topic and trash talk it, but with love, of course. And I just called to say I love pop trash topics. <laughs> okay, Stevie. Today on the Pop Trash Podcast, we're talking established and emerging cult classics, exploring some box office failures that refuse to remain relegated to bad movie status. What does it take to bring a once pan pop product back from the brink. So what comes to mind when you hear the words cult classics? Ooh, when I hear the words cult classics, I think three things come to mind. The first is passionate, rabid fan base, right? Like the types that will stand outside in line for 47 hours to get tickets to something or that'll start an online petition to save something, mm -hmm. you know, a real sense of community. The Fanalos. The, the, the Fanalos, <laughs> yes. Or it didn't land well when it first came out. Maybe that meant that it was a box office failure. Maybe that meant that it was critically reviled. Maybe it just that it was under the radar and didn't really get the respect it deserved. Mm. But that there was something about when it came out that it just underperformed or at least didn't rise to the top of like our pop culture filters. Mm -hmm. These types of roller coaster rise and fall redemptions are the things that give us a hocus pocus two 30 years later. Yes, exactly. Now are you gonna let me say the third thing? Now say the third thing. <laughs> <laughs> the third thing is longevity. You can't have a cult classic that is from 2020 mm -hmm. or even 2015, I'd argue. I think you have to have a number of years behind you, maybe 15 years is the youngest a cult classic could be. But really, you've got to have something that's just been around in our culture for quite some time, long enough to have ridden the journey from underperformance mm -hmm. to something beloved by the masses. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that makes sense. So it's it's not a fad because that would be like a flash in the pan. People really love it. They're into it for a moment in time. A cult classic is, as you described, a devoted fan base that continues to keep that property alive throughout time and history, which is kind of a really good way to think about it. If you follow the yellow brick road backwards in time, you'll find that 1939's Wizard of Oz reportedly only made $3 million on a $2.7 million budget. It was thought of as a failure for MGM. Ain't that a real twister, Annie M? <laughs> well, you know, $3 million in 1939 is worth $7 gajillion today. It's true. So the Wizard of Oz is really interesting to me because that existed before television. So what you're talking about there is years mm. passing before people could actually consume that on a television. Mm -hmm. uh, so like years and years later, becoming a cult classic, not like the Shawshank Redemption, which really already had a distribution network in place, right? You could mm -hmm. walk into any grocery store, a Hollywood video or mm -hmm. a blockbuster and rent this thing in the mid nineties. Uh, and you couldn't necessarily do that with a thing like the Wizard of Oz. So that's really interesting just to see like how the the, the years truncate over time. Same with It's a Wonderful Life. That had a loss at the box office, but now it's a Christmas staple. And part of the reason was that it had fell into the public domain. And now TV stations had free programming. They aired it every year and people stuck at home with their family on the holidays. They watched it all the time. I think that is one of the things that we are going to find out as we talk about the films that we've selected today, how repetition really plays a part in the familiarity and the warmth of knowing this property in and out. You know, I had Mavis Staples over for the holidays. Yeah, talk about a Christmas staple. Jesus. <laughs> I don't even know who Mavis Staples is. Well, she's I've, a cult classic. So. I, I've, I've been to Staples and picked up office supplies. <laughs> Someone's got to break the ice, and it might as well be me. I mean, I'm used to being a hostess. It's part of my husband's work, and it's always difficult when a group of new friends meet together for the first time to get acquainted. So I'm perfectly prepared to start the ball rolling. I mean, I, I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself, and I'm very intrigued, and oh my, this soup's delicious, isn't it? That was Eileen Brennan's character, Mrs. Peacock, in Clue the Movie from 1985. It's an often quoted speech by fans of the film. Really, the breakneck speed at which those lines are delivered as dialogue, it's really ripe for shouting lines back at the screen like Rocky Horror. I think that's a key ingredient to a film or show really digging into the hearts of its fans, don't you think? Oh, totally. And I think what you have here that really works is a bunch of individual characters that are all kind of iconic in their own way. So everybody knows the game clue and knows that each individual character can really be someone you either get behind or you hate or you love or whatever. And so you have kind of in the same way of like Rocky Horror, you have a bunch of different characters that are all kind of leading that production. There's not like a single solitary tour de force performance. Instead, you get a real ensemble that everyone can kind of like just rally behind. And I think it really works for something like Clue, which is exactly the type of movie you said it when you want to just scream back at the screen, you want to throw your popcorn, you want to shout random lines. It's all those things. And I really think part of it is because 
it's driven by an ensemble. What a cast. They all had brilliant comic timing. Mrs. White, you've been paying our friend the blackmailer ever since your husband died under, shall we say, mysterious circumstances. He didn't actually seem to like me very much. He had threatened to kill me in public. Why would he want to kill you in public? I think she meant he threatened in public to kill her. I don't know that Clue could get made today in mm -hmm. the same way it was made back in the 1980s when it felt like it was much easier for people to come together in films like this without having like an A-lister. Interestingly enough, Leslie Ann Warren filled in for the part of Miss Scarlet at the last minute. It was supposed to be Carrie Fisher. She would have been the biggest kind of name. And instead, what you get are incredibly beloved actors in our pop culture history, right? Like everybody mm -hmm. loved Madeline Kahn. Everybody mm -hmm. loved Martin Mall. Everybody loved Christopher Lloyd, Michael McKeon. But, you know, they didn't have the type of like individual rabid fan bases. But when you combine them all together, I think it creates this really recipe for, you know, beloved cult classic following. In between scenes, they would just hang out in the billiard room. It was a working pool table. Shots were being set up. They would go in there and that built this amazing camaraderie that I think comes across on the screen, which is fascinating because the only ad lib line in Clue is Madeline Kahn's. Yes, I did it. I killed Yvette. I hated her so much. It, it, the, it flame, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing. Breath, heaving breaths, heaving. Everything else, the lines were delivered as written in the script, which is a testament to this troupe of actors that they made it feel so warm and inviting, like you wanted to be a part of it. And you thought it was just this ad-libbed comedy troupe. Clue failed to break even in ticket sales, and it even opened in the Christmas movie-going season on December 13th, 1985. It had a 15 million budget and was in the red to the tune of 14.6, so just shy of breaking even. It's hard to believe, looking back now, and how beloved Clue is. Some folks, I get it, they will always think this is a bad movie, and I wonder if that's part of the charm of cult classics, that there are those folks who get it and those folks who just will never see it. Well, that's something I think is interesting because just because something fails at the box office, to me, it doesn't make me ask the question, why did this flop necessarily? It makes me ask the question, why didn't people go see this in a theater? And I know they're kind of related, but there's something like different in the nuance between those two questions, I think. It needed time to sink into the culture that it would be a fun communal experience to enjoy. And you might not get that from the first two to four weeks at a box office. And by then, you know, a movie's on its way out the door if it's underperforming. Answering that question of why was the box office off? It's not just, this is a bad movie. The marketing has a story. So Clue has three different endings and they were sent to theaters to simulate the experience of playing the board game because it could come out in many different ways. So executives thought it might encourage audience to come back to different theaters for repeated viewings. Do you remember movie show times and newspaper ads? That's even a thing in the past. <laughs> yeah, that's how you knew what was playing. You'd have to go to page C7. Well, anyway, the ads contained letters 
A, B, or C, indicating which ending was being shown at which theater. Well, what happened was people were so confused or worried they might not see the quote-unquote good ending that they mostly stayed away. And critics pan clue too. Roger Ebert at the time said of the three endings, it's sort of silly since it doesn't really make the slightest bit of difference who did it. One ending is more than enough. Although I kind of also get sometimes when gimmicks like that, when those things don't land, it kind of reminds me a little bit of like the 3D version of Jaws or something. Yes. Something like that, where it's like done to sort of zhuzh up Mm -hmm. the franchise but it actually doesn't translate well in real time. Or it just seemed as like basically a tactic to sell tickets, Mm -hmm. which I think a cynical audience isn't going to always love. But if it was the three endings that sunk it at the box office, it's the fun of seeing them all on home video that helped its reputation climb. It also, again, was in heavy rotation on HBO or one of those cable properties. Now you could see them back to back and its ubiquitousness came at the right time, kind of the availability on the VHS market held the key to that repetition we've been talking about that made it a cult classic. It was among the Paramount video cassettes that sold discounted at like about $9.99, $19.99 from the crazy high price of $99 that VHS tapes were usually sold for because they were locking in the rental market. They would sell the tapes to the rental market. You would rent them for $5. Video stores would recoup that money, but it became too high of a price for people to own. Well, now that people had VCRs in their home, it became one of the few movies to own a movie in your home library, building your home library instead of just renting them. And since you owned it, chances are you'd watch it again and again and again. And again, it's on cable all the time, scooped up with all those other bad movies. You're watching them again and again, starts to build that repetition. That's the fertile ground for building a cult classic. That's interesting that you call out its rise alongside the rise of VCRs, because that's how I watched this movie was not only renting it, but also having to rent a VCR, which Mm. you could do back then, which is what we sort of did. We went to like a gas station, rented a VCR that came in like a giant bag and, you know, videos alongside of it. And Clue was one of those. Mm. And yeah, you're totally right that that as that just became like an easier thing for people to own or get access to, it meant that you could watch things like this over and over again. Now you're you're making me think of like, you know, obviously Ghostbusters was a giant hit, but I probably watched that like 475 mm-hmm. times in the 1980s. Right. And it goes back to what we said about Shawshank. It's like, is it a good movie? Yeah. But why is it so beloved? Like, you know, everybody freaking goes crazy about this movie. It's a fine movie and there are just many like it. I love it too. But I think it was like hammered into you turn TNT on, there it is. And wherever it is, it's familiar. You can watch the end of it. You have an hour to finish your dinner. You watch the end of Shawshank Redemption. I have a question for you. When you played Clue, did you always insist on being the same character? Yes, Colonel Mustard. No. <laughs> Probably Miss Scarlet. Yeah. <laughs> no, knowing you, definitely Mrs. Peacock. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. She's right up my alley. I'm a peacock through and through. <laughs> I was always Mr. Green because I loved Green as a child. Mm. And 
specifically remember clue teaching me what the fuck a conservatory was which <laughs> still to this day i've never been in a house that's had a conservatory i've always wanted to have secret passages in my house because of clue too And just like the end of a Clue board game session, we would open the envelope and find out who did the murder, with what, and where. Was it Miss Scarlet with the rope in the billiard room? No, in fact, I think it was Ellen Ripley with the alien on the planet Fiorina. What a segue <laughs> to the second part of our podcast. So we must be talking about Alien 3. Yes, Alien Cubed, which is not a recipe for chopped up alien. Mm, uh, but it's yeah, delicious you... <laughs> with a little butter and garlic sauce, a little white wine. You make a nice pan sauce with it. It's out of this world. Oh. <laughs> oh. Um, I will make that joke at least 17 times in the next 10 minutes. So. <laughs> Can you believe it has been 30 years since 1992? Which also yes. means, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Eric, tell me just two things in general that you know about the Alien franchise writ large. I know there's face huggers and chest bursters. <laughs> that's interesting. There are those two things. That's that's also what happens if I drink coffee after six p.m. <laughs> <laughs> that, that happens when I go to the gym and I get on the treadmill. <laughs> okay, those are two good things. I really like that. That's that's not what I've what I've picked. Most people would have said, "Well, I know it stars Sigourney Weaver, and I know Ridley Scott or James Cameron did it." Now, Alien Three was known for something particularly big in pop culture. So, I'm going to ask you. Would you shave your head to fight an alien? Oh, absolutely. For the time, this was like for an actress, this was brave and bold to shave her head and be on camera. I mean, she's already a, the badass of Alien 1 and 2. So where do you go from that? You shave your head in Alien exactly. 3. Exactly. Uh, exactly. And that's what I remember the movie posters being about and all the buzz about this film mm -hmm. was like Sigourney Weaver shaved her head for this. Yeah. What? But for us today... Mm -hmm. Why is Alien 3 on our list of flops to tops? And I'd say it's pretty easy. In 1992, when this movie came out, it wasn't seen as out of this world. See, I told you I'm going to make that joke. <laughs> One more time. Times. You should have like a bell that rings. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just sort of Alf laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> So sure, Alien 3 made over $100 million globally at the box office, but its U.S. domestic numbers were not supernova levels. But more than that, the director of the film, who is renowned music video director and now major film star director, David Fincher, it, this was his first film and he completely renounced it, much like mm. you'd renounce uh, that weird overalls phase you went through in 2002. <laughs> oh, I don't remember that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So that is like why I want to talk about Alien 3 today, which has this like lure to it now. So there have been documentaries made about this movie and books written about this movie and podcasts. But I would say, Eric, you watched Alien 3. Can you just give me five words that come to mind when you think of Alien 3? Um, grungy, prison, planet, uh, terrible movie. 
<laughs> wow that uh, was five that was five <laughs> that is true that is those are five words um interesting that you think it is terrible i actually don't think it's terrible i that was just for the joke i think it's it's got its issues i watched what is known as the assembly cut you mentioned yes. david fincher disowned it and so you know when they re-released it for the anniversaries with the other alien films and i was like what the fuck is happening? The alien, where's the dog? It came out of an ox in mine, which made absolutely no sense. I remember seeing Alien 3 in the theaters and I enjoyed it. I thought it was fine. I didn't think it was great. So I'm excited to hear your thoughts on Alien 3 classic, like Coke classic. Well, I want to kind of capture a little bit of the plot because I actually think that there's pieces of the plot that make it a good movie. So here we go. The movie basically starts the second that the Aliens movie ends, based the 1987 sequel to the original, by finding our iconic alien fighting hero, Sigourney Weaver's Ripley, and a few other characters from the Aliens movie propelled through space in some kind of cryogenic chamber where she lands on an all-male prison colony. <laughs> what are the chances? Of you know? all the prison planets <laughs> and all of the universe, I had to land on this one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, I'd say make lemons out of lemonade, but man, it's tough. It's tough on this. You you basically have landed on the worst planet possible. <laughs> yeah. And so she's awakened, Sigourney Weaver's character, Ellen Ripley, is awakened from her cryogenic chamber and realizes she's the only survivor from that alien's plot. And Ripley finds mostly a bunch of mean, bald white men who all look alike. And Charles S. Dutton, who plays a prisoner with a good conscience named Dylan. And then they soon discover that it wasn't just Ripley who traveled to their out-of-this-world prison. <laughs> But a face hugger did too. Ugh. And that face hugger alien is about to break a whole bunch of shit and kill a whole lot of people. <laughs> it's going to so make it Newton's out of Newt. <laughs> Newt is the little girl who survives the end of Aliens. And it was very shocking that they crash on this planet. And as you said, Ripley's the only survivor. Well, and you're totally right to call it out because in the first 25 minutes of this movie, they essentially saw Newt's body into about 30 different pieces. Thank goodness the assembly cut didn't have more of that, literally. <laughs> it was still stressful. And Sigourney Weaver's reactions, uh, it was shot really well. It held the tension. So parts like that rise above this brushing it off as a bad movie. Yes, I agree with that. And to me, the whole premise of Alien really then, once you have that kind of summary, comes down to can Ripley organize this boorish group of male prisoners who don't have any weapons because, duh, it's a prison, uh, to defeat this alien? It kind of looks like a Nirvana smells like teen spirit video. It it's very grunge. 90s. Yeah. It looks like that era of bad CGI just before CGI came in, mm -hmm. but was done with puppetry and a mix of green screen. So it's not but your brain thinks it's bad CGI. It's a much smaller film because the last movie, where do you go from tons and tons of aliens all over this planet to want back to one alien as a threat, a singular small threat in a confined space. So when you start to kind of look at the movies individually and then as a whole, it's pretty interesting. I really agree with that because I think it adds an element of that sort of spirituality or 
um, religiosity or whatever you want to call it that I don't think is really apparent in the first two. And it centers around the fact that Sigourney Weaver's character, Ellen Ripley, discovers very early into the movie that she's pregnant with an alien <laughs> to me. And she lives in Texas. Really? What a conundrum to save humanity from future face huggers. Ripley has to consider doing the unthinkable. And therein lies basically the tension at the core of this movie. Can she survive the aliens? Can she survive a bunch of awful men in prison? Can she even survive interplanetary scientists who are now on their way to the prison to try and save her because they want to use her body for science? And to me, that's just like all these central questions. And then, of course, could the cast and crew survive the reviews that came out for Alien 3? Because Yowza, they were not <laughs> kind. Can I read you some of these reviews? Oh, bring it on. All right. Maybe you just tell me if you agree with these. I'm going to start with Variety. None of these characters have a defined persona, making all of the bald convicts all virtually indistinguishable alien bait. Agree. Agreed. Okay, here we go. This is Washington Post. In space, said the ad for Alien in 1979, no one can hear you scream. In Alien 3, you don't have to bother about space. The third teaming of Sigourney Weaver and Miss Slime is nothing to scream about. Uh, disagree on that one. <laughs> I think that's a little too harsh. There were, there were definitely suspenseful moments of it. Yeah. All right, last one, New York Times. Mr. Fincher, who has directed music videos for Madonna, Billy Idol, and others, doesn't waste time trying to make things plausible. His direction of Alien 3 suggests that he grew up reading instructions on how to program VCRs. He knows that most explanations, like directions, are incomprehensible and thus irrelevant. I disagree here, and only because I know that he fought hard against the studio. Can we lay it at David Fincher's feet? There are a lot of factors at play that kind of make the messy parts of Alien 3 a mess. Oh, no. David Fincher is not the reason many people mm -hmm. thought this movie didn't stick the landing. In fact, I think, to use an expression that you just said, I think he made Newtonade out of newts. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite review that I saw after watching the film was a Vox article that described the film yeah. as a big budget movie about human frailty and the inevitability of death in which the characters are never particularly likable or heroic and the protagonist dies in the end. <laughs> womp, womp. You know, the summer blockbuster feel-good movie of the season. That's probably what people didn't like. Ripley, last girl of the horror film of the Alien franchise who escaped twice, badass, mamma jamma, taken down aliens, comes to her end in this film. When you step back and look at it, it makes sense. It's kind of a beautifully bookended. There's nowhere to go. She saves humanity, as you said, by sacrificing herself. All of these themes are important and big and grand ideas, but people didn't want that out of their popcorn alien flick, right? I think that is the downfall of Alien 3 in its time. I'm fascinated that he even got away with that, that the studios were like, sure, yeah, let's, uh, this is the swan song for Ripley. I do want to talk about a few things about Alien 3 that I think probably didn't work in 1992, but that over time, again, this longevity thing around mm. cult classics have given it some kind of cool gloss. So mm -hmm. 
Um, here we go. And I'm going to start with the script. That script for this movie basically languished for years and years. They had to film parts of this without a script because it was just like a constant sort of stewing. And they had various different versions. And so kind of piecing this all together, it really felt to me kind of like trying to patch a quilt together. The dialogue in this is not mm -hmm. particularly good. There's no. some lines in here. Sigourney Weaver's Ellen Ripley says about the alien You've been in my life so long, I can't remember anything else. <laughs> you know, my favorite one. Oh, I'm ready. When, when she's looking for the alien in the depths of the prison mm -hmm. colony. And this she's is going like, to be, I know it. She's basically like, come out, come out. Don't be afraid. I'm part of the family. <laughs> It, exactly. And then there's a third one, which this like there's a variation of this line in almost every eight, 90s action movie. Um, but she's trying to essentially like rally the troops. Uh, and, and by troops, I mean these other male prisoners to try and fight this alien. When they first heard about this thing, it was crew expendable. The next time they sent in Marines, they were expendable. What makes you think they're going to care about a bunch of lifers who found God at the ass end of space? And Sigourney Weaver's character, Ellen Ripley, goes, your ass is already on the line. The question <laughs> is, what are you going to do about it? Right. Which gives me so many vibes. There was no way to make Alien 3 a critical darling, mm -hmm. and a massive powerhouse, given yeah. all the different like chefs that were in the, the kitchen. Mm -hmm. But again, with time, I think you really get some of this good stuff. So that's yeah. one thing I would say. The second thing is you named it too, the special effects. There are so many times in this movie where I was like, am I watching something from the 90s or am I watching something from the 1960s? Yeah. <laughs> like, it had like elements of like Clash of the Titans and Crawl. Uh -huh. And it's what's Pop it. <laughs> it's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like, that's what's funny to me is that a year earlier, Terminator 2 Judgment Day came out and yeah. the special effects in that are still better than like 95% of the movies that come out today. But the alien itself still really holds up as kind of a terrifying creature. It's hard to tell in this, you know, the third movie, mm -hmm. whether the alien is like yeah. six inches or six feet tall. Right. Um, and it varies based on the scene, I think. But there's still something kind of scary and still kind of electric about watching that alien and like the acidic ooze like fall mm -hmm. off of it the diminishing returns as you get to the third part of a sequel when you've shown the alien you've shown a planet full of aliens you've seen it there isn't that like suspense of the unknown anymore so the special effects really have to step it up or the atmosphere or the way it's shot and cut really has to do the heavy lifting now that the first one didn't really need to because there was such an unknown quality about it. I also have a third thing that kind of, I think, didn't really work in 1992, but over time, again, people start to respect. And it is related to David Fincher's direction. He had such like a painstaking seriousness to get everything right. There's a great interview with one of the producers who talks about the battles that David Fincher had with the studio. And he's like, David Fincher went out of his like mind trying to get the look and texture of blood correct. And the studio was like, mm. why the hell are you spending so much time <laughs> and money into doing that? And over time, you kind of get an appreciation for what he was trying to do or the paying attention to the details. It, it almost changes the way you look at it. Right. What you're articulating is what is a film that is made or could have been made by any director 
any director of the studio hires versus a director who has a singular vision, wants it the way they want it, has reasons for doing it this way, called difficult, things like that. Totally. Ooh, could you imagine Penny Marshall directing this? <laughs> It'd be great. Bradley, go to the Kmart. <laughs> Hello, I'm the alien. <laughs> There's no crying on Fiorina. <laughs> If we were to compare the two movies, and I think I would say that Clue is this established cult classic and Alien 3 is maybe an emerging cult classic, probably a small group of Alien fans that are reevaluating it and being like, hey, it deserves another look. Yeah, I think that is right. So Clue is a standalone movie. It had one release in the mid 1980s. There were no sequels. Alien is a franchise. Mm -hmm. And I think what's interesting about Alien is that the third movie was seen at the time as sort of a letdown compared to the first two. Mm -hmm. For some folks who may not visit this franchise after the first two, I think it's well worth going back and looking at this third one. If this Alien movie had been released on its own and didn't have the weight of the other ones, immediately you're putting it in a pecking order. It's, oh, is this as good as what came before it? Does this expand on the universe in the way I, the viewer, wanted it to or expected it to? Another thing why I think Alien 3 has risen in value you know, it, it touches on those three things that I, we said at the beginning, there's community, right? So a passionate mm -hmm. group of fans have, mm -hmm. you know, basically found a way to lift this up. There's a real sort of uh, sense of longevity, right? Time has gone on mm -hmm. and you've also got subsequent Aliens movies not being very good. What I think is so radical about it and why I think people are giving it a new look is Ripley was supposed to be a male character and Ridley mm -hmm. Scott made her a woman. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's real power in this franchise. I mean, there's just not that many franchises in cinema history driven by female action heroes. And this is probably the biggest one when you see sort of, you know, quote unquote, the end of Ripley's character mm -hmm. uh, in Alien 3, there is this sort of religious experience of watching them. And that brings us to the end of this Top of the Flops episode. So whether you're a mystery lover or a face hugger, hope you enjoyed this exploration of some bad movies that have now become cult classics. We'd also love to hear what some of your favorite cult classics are. So like Tears for Fears said, give us a shout. You can find us at poptrashmuseum.com or at poptrashmuseum on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok. Thanks for listening and may all of your Shawshanks be redeemed. <laughs> get busy living or get busy dying. <laughs>